Ladies and gentlemen, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then what is it? What is it? That's right. It's a duck. But this duck is a nuclear duck. Years ago, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delivered this much-quoted speech at APAC, warning against nuclear duck Iran and the U.S. plans for a nuclear deal. Fast forward 11 years, and this week we hear reports that the United States is now looking for a less-for-less less deal to stave off that Iranian duck's final launch. This week alone, Iran made headlines when it claimed it had developed a hypersonic missile, when we were told that Iran will head a naval alliance in cooperation with other Gulf states. And we also heard that Iran is set to reopen its embassy in Saudi Arabia. There are new truces in the region and a re-embrace of Syria in the Arab League. And that's just the beginning. There's been an uptick in attacks coming at U.S. forces in Syria from Iraq in recent uh, months, very significant in my opinion. And together with that, the ongoing maritime contest between uh, Iranian attempts at harassing shipping coming through the Straits of Hormuz and the attempt by the United States and allied navies to prevent that. It's all pretty much under the same heading of a heating up, I would say, of uh, Iran's confrontation with its enemies in the region. That's Dr. Jonathan Spire, the director of research at the Middle East Forum and editor of Middle East Quarterly. Today, a freelance security analyst for Jane's Information Group and a columnist at the Jerusalem Post, he's also an on-the-ground journalist who has entered Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq numerous times. The author of the 2018 book, Days of the Fall, A Reporter's Journey in the Syria and Iraq Wars, joined me this week to break down what's happening in the region. And so this week, I, Amanda Borshaldan, asked Jonathan Spire, what matters now? Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K, lawfirm.com, or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me here today in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. 
Thank you very much for inviting me, Amanda. Very nice to be here. It's a visit that I've been planning for a long time, actually, with you, because there's so much happening in the region. I feel like the chessboard is shifting, if not daily, at least weekly. We have Syria re-entering the Arab League. We have Saudi Arabia and Iran all of a sudden friends again. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have the UAE and Iran also kind of friends. And now there's talk of this new joint navy. So I ask you, Jonathan, in this period of time in which so much is happening every single day, what matters now? Yeah, to me, what matters now pretty much all comes under the Iran file heading. I would say a very interesting article in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, uh, revealing information regarding plans by the Iranians in uh, cooperation with the Syrian regime to carry out attacks on US forces inside Syria. There's been an uptick in attacks coming at US forces in Syria from Iraq in recent uh, months, very significant in my opinion. And together with that, the ongoing maritime contest between uh, Iranian attempts at harassing shipping coming through the Straits of Hormuz and the attempt by the United States and allied navies to prevent that. It's all pretty much under the same heading of a heating up, I would say, of uh, Iran's confrontation with its enemies in the region. Right. So if Iran is on one side of the chessboard, if we can call it that, who is mm. on the other side at this point? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's the key question in a way, because whereas we used to be keen on, certainly in this country, keen on sort of positing the emergence of a, of a crystallizing counter-Iran alliance in which the Abraham Accords, obviously, of August 2020 played a starring role, where supposedly there was coming together, you know, a number of countries who had the joint interest of being threatened by Iran. Israel, United Arab Emirates, hopefully in the near future, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. And now I think because of events of recent weeks and months, we have to very seriously qualify or caveat that quite optimistic picture. Because actually, as it now seems, certainly from the vantage point of at least where I'm sitting here in Israel, uh, there is an attempt by uh, the Gulf Arab states to kind of hedge their bets between Israel and Iran or between the US and Iran, I think with the clear intention of staying out of any future confrontation between Israel slash the US and Iran. And together with that, there is also growing evidence of a desire on the part of the United States administration before the elections in 2024, so to speak, to reach some kind of diplomatic achievement on the uh, Iran nuclear file, whereby a kind of less for less partial deal would be carried out with the Iranians receiving sanctions relief and money in return for keeping their enrichment to the current 60%. All of that is counter to Israel's desires and interests, which means that if all that goes ahead, then kind of um, unfortunately what we have is an emergent picture in which Israel will find itself increasingly alone against uh, Iran. Now, Israel has many, many capabilities of its own, so that's not a reason to hit the panic button, so to speak. But that is, I think, an emergent and very interesting and significant reality. So this is quite the tangled knot that you're weaving right now. Mm -hmm. And I just want to pick out some of the strings to begin with. First of all, the re-embrace of Syria just had my eyebrows way up into my hairline mm -hmm. because the, we're talking about a dictator who killed half a million of his own countrymen. We're talking about six million refugees from mm -hmm. his country. We're talking about, you know, horrible poison gas attacks on him. And yeah. now he's again part of the Arab League. But does that mean that essentially... Iran is part of the Arab League? Well, I do think that, yes, the return of Syria to the Arab mainstream and obviously the recent welcoming of uh, President Bashar uh, Assad, as we must now, I guess, begin to get used to calling him again uh, at the Arab League uh, summit in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, you know, is, is evidence 
uh, of a general rejigging of the situation. And I do think the return of Syria is downstream from the return of Iran to normal diplomatic relations with UAE and with Saudi Arabia. The, the return of Syria happens downstream from that. That's to say it's hard to imagine it happening without that happening beforehand, because Assad Syria is an integral uh, element of the Iran-led regional alliance. Now, that analysis of mine, you know, would be comes contrary to the view of some other some of my colleagues who would say, no, this is on the contrary, an example of the beginning of Syria's distancing itself from Iran. I think that's wildly overblown and optimistic. I think what's happened so far is that the Iranians and their allies have received all kinds of free gifts from the from the Gulf Arabs and, and others, you know, reputedly their adversaries. And in return, at least so far, they have given nothing. Uh, a recent uh, statement by Tim Lenderking, the US envoy on Yemen, for example, uh, quoted in the Wall Street Journal, had him saying, up until now, at least, we see no change whatsoever in the provision of arms by the Iranians to the Houthis in Yemen. Now, I seem to remember that that was supposed to be the main concession everybody was hoping that Iran would make in return for the return of Iranian-Saudi diplomatic relations. It ain't happening yet. And if anybody thinks that Bashar Assad is going to begin to distance himself from the Iranians in return for his return to the Arab League. Well, there's no evidence of that uh, of any kind whatsoever. So I wouldn't exactly say it's Iran joining the Arab League, but it may well be Iran uh, demonstrating the hollowness of the Arab League and demonstrating that Iran and its allies right now are the people with the advantage and the initiative in terms of the regional diplomatic and strategic situation. So what does that mean? As you said, it says that Iran is flexing, essentially. And so does that mean that in terms of our region, Iran is the player right now? Well, I wouldn't say Iran is, is the player in the sense that, you know, we, we're focusing on areas in which the Iranians have the advantage and there are areas in which they do. They have proven remarkably uh, adept operating in the kind of fragmented and partially collapsed spaces that have emerged in the Middle East over the last decade or decade and a half, whether that's Syria or Iraq or Lebanon or Yemen, or arguably even the Palestinian territories, you know, they have a kind of methodology and praxis of irregular warfare and irregular political activity and combining the two, which has produced very, very serious and significant results in their favor over the last decade and a half. Now, that isn't the entirety of the region. That isn't the entirety of what politics and power is. You know, when it comes to economic power, they are, of course, vastly outstripped by the Gulf Arabs. And we see the way in which, while the Iranians try to get close to the Chinese, actually the Chinese are much more interested in relations with Saudi Arabia, for example, because there's much more potential gain in it for them. And when it comes to conventional military activity, we see the way in which Iran has no effective response to Israel's bombing campaign over the skies of Syria of the last uh, now seven or eight years uh, standing. They simply have no no way to respond to that. So when it comes to most of the gauges uh, of uh, conventional political and military activity, it is Iran's adversaries that have the advantage. But what Iran has proven very much able to do is to kind of play a weak hand very well indeed and to turn their weaknesses into strengths. Think of what's happening in the Strait of Hormuz in recent days. As an example, the Iranians, of course, can't uh, stand up against the United States Fifth Fleet and the United States Navy. But what they can do is they can turn their limited abilities uh, into an advantage by developing a kind of maritime terrorism, if you can call it that way, based on the use of the aggressive use of fast attack boats to harass uh, civilian uh, oil tankers and other uh, ships passing through the strait. So that's another example of the way they tend, they have a way of turning weakness into strength, which delivers, you know, quite a lot for them in terms of the realities on the ground. 
Okay, so the sea is one area in which they're using this terrorism. My center of gravity is, of course, Israel. Yeah. So let's talk about our northern border mm-hmm. and in Syria and Lebanon. And you, unlike many, many, many Israelis or people based here at least, mm-hmm. have been there. So when was the last time you were there? Well, the last time I was in Syria was a while ago, and I was in November 2019, just prior to the uh, the pandemic. Uh, the last time I was in the Syrian border area in uh, northern Iraq uh, was, in fact, November of last year, so it was a few months ago. So is the country just a rubble, as we're hearing in the news? What is happening there? Yeah, the, the Syria is. I mean, I, I managed to visit you know, one of my sort of many visits to, to Syria during the period of civil war, and I managed to visit uh, Damascus and the area the last time was in April uh, of 2017. And, and when I came back from there, I mean, I didn't, sort of have any huge scoops in terms of discovering, you know, something factual material on the ground. But I did come back with a very strong sense, which I then wrote about at that time for Foreign Policy magazine, uh, which was that Syria had effectively ceased to exist. That's what I called the article. In other words, that Syria was in a state of uh, de facto partition, of ongoing frozen conflict, of uh, in- facing enormous you know, destruction of infrastructure, and that that added up to a country that had effectively ceased to function as a country. We're now six years on from that, uh, I was kind of accused at the time by some colleagues of having a somewhat simplistic view and actually underneath the stuff that I hadn't seen, this immensely strong Syrian state. Well, maybe. We're now six years on from that and I personally find no reason to radically revise that impression and that analysis. Syria remains divided, as is well known. I was in, into a, a situation where the government only control regime, only controls between 60 and 70% of the country. The Kurds and their US allies control initial 30, uh, additional 30% and then the Turks and their jihad and Islamist allies control the remaining 10%. But even within those areas of control, and this is maybe the crucial point, within the regime's so-called area of control, the people really controlling the whip hand, so to speak, is not the Assad regime and Bashar Assad, but it's the Iranians on the one hand and the Russians on the other. So Syria today is a thoroughly is a country thoroughly penetrated by outside powers, both regional and global. It is the arena for those powers to play out their own rivalries without concern or requ- request of the Syrian people. It remains enormously uh, destroyed in terms of, of infrastructure, with no real prospect for major reconstruction at the present time, as long as American and European sanctions continue on the country. So yes, Syria is indeed a pile of smoke and rubble, unfortunately, and tragically for its people. And right now, at least, it doesn't seem like that's going to be changing anytime uh, very soon. And add to that, of course, the boon in drugs in the drug industry being created. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, Syria, the, the regime at least has now emerged as maybe the region's first uh, narco state. Frankly, it is now the estimate is that Syria, Assad Syria, in cooperation, by the way, with Lebanese Hezbollah as a key partner in this, uh, is now responsible for, I think, the figure given is 80% of the world's captagon trade, you know, this deeply addictive uh, drug, which is making its way down via Jordan down into the Gulf. Uh, yeah, so this is, and this has proven to be, you know, a remarkably uh, useful tool for the regime, not only economically, by the way, but I think also diplomatically. That's to say, I think it's, it's a fair assessment to make that one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia and UAE were so keen to renew relations with the Assad regime because they thought that would be a way in which they could then request, so to speak, that Assad begin to change, you know, to, to affect the flow of Captagon down into, into the Gulf. So this is an example not only of a regime using narcotics to provide uh, uh, revenue for itself, but also leveraging narcotics as a kind of diplomatic tool of pressure. It's all very 
very bad stuff. And it's really not what you want to be happening, so to speak, in the neighbourhood in which you uh, you are, are resident. But that's the that's the situation. So yes, Syria and Lebanese Hezbollah. Lebanese Hezbollah, of course, has long made use of the international trade in narcotics as a source of revenue, and this is well documented. And today, Assad Syria has joined it as a very very major partner in that enterprise. Talk about the Hamas units that are now in Lebanon as well. Yeah, well, I think this is very, very significant. I mean, you, you'll remember that in uh, in April there was this uh, volley of uh, thirty-four rockets and missiles fired from southern Lebanon uh, in the direction of Israel. And at the time, at least, we were told that this, uh, you know, the initial kind of assessment given, or at least message given by the Israeli system, was that this had been appeared to have been carried out without the knowledge of Hezbollah. Uh, and that was something which kind of caused you know many of us to kind of raise a, raise an eyebrow, so to speak, because it just didn't seem very feasible. I'm somebody who spent a little bit of time in South Lebanon, not only as a soldier, I've also spent time there as a soldier, but um, but also as a journalist uh, traveling around that area. And you know, it really is, without exaggeration, one of the most locked down areas on the planet, at least which I've experienced. Hezbollah, even the visible presence of Hezbollah's infrastructure is everywhere south of the Litani. And that's without mentioning the invisible structure, no less potent, which is surely surrounding that. So the notion that anybody could kind of get in there and fire not one stray rocket, which is maybe just about credible, but a whole salvo of rockets and missiles without anybody knowing who they are and without the permission of the Hezbollah power in the area, it's simply not serious. As far as I'm aware, the system has kind of walked that back, that initial back in recent uh, weeks or subsequent weeks. Um, I think we can conclude that this was Hamas, and if it was Hamas, it was Hamas operating with the permission of Hezbollah. And this is very significant indeed, because one of the uh, most uh, famous or, or popular slogans of Hezbollah and its leaders and its mouthpieces and other mouthpieces of the Iran-led regional bloc is the notion of the unification of the fronts or unification of the arenas, which is meant to mean that rather than uh, one or other element of the so-called resistance axis uh, operating against Israel at any given time, rather they will coordinate their activities so that action in Jerusalem will lead to reaction from Gaza, as we saw, for example, in the Ramadan of uh, 2021, or as we've just seen in April, you know, action against Islamic Jihad in, uh, in Gaza will lead to action coming from Hamas out of southern Lebanon. So this is these were evidence that that long-standing slogan was starting to be put into practice in quite a worrying way. If we think of the Megiddo incident also in uh, March, where you know a terrorist came down from Hezbollah-controlled South Lebanon carrying an IED, you know, a weapon not usually seen in the West Bank with the intention of carrying out a major attack, was neutralized before he could do so. But the fact that Hezbollah had clearly either dispatched him or allowed him to be dispatched from southern Lebanon was very significant indeed. There's a sense in which there was a growing mood of confidence on the part of the Iran-Leb regional bloc. And it was a growing mood, of course, of misplaced confidence. They were looking at the demonstrations in Israel. And by the way, lots and lots of media coverage in pro-Iran media about the demonstrations in Israel, all of which not seeing it as what it actually was, at least in my opinion, an example of the strength of Israeli civil society, but rather seeing it as evidence of Israel's artificiality and fragility and weakness, putting that together with the growing confidence of uh, some of the fighters in the Northern West Bank and other indications, and the sense they may well be heading towards a fall, because they may well be heading towards testing Israel's resolution and strength. And Israel is, of course, much stronger than they are, even in the combination of them. But Israel does not want to have to prove that. Israel would prefer to maintain deterrence. And there was a sense that deterrence 
Terence was getting dangerously thin, so to speak, and that, that we were heading towards some form of uh, testing of strength. I would say we're to some degree still in that mode, even though we managed to get through Ramadan this year without any major flare-ups. I think we're still to some degree in that mode, and I think also Israel's pattern of activity uh, in a number of arenas confirms that. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Even in the past several days, we've heard voices out of Iran saying, yes, we will continue to see Israel as the major threat. Sure. But I, I've never understood why. Well, I think that if we look at Iran's uh, regional strategy, we can see a kind of combination of uh, sort of geostrategic ambitions and also ideological and religious motivations. And I think to some degree, Israel plays a part in both of those. When it comes to geostrategic ambitions, as is well known, the Iranians want to reach the Mediterranean Sea, as indeed Persian empires have been trying to do since antiquity. They want to replace the United States as the security guarantor in the Gulf. Uh, again, you know, a, a clear sort of geostrategic goal. And those elements add up to a desire to replace the United States overall as the hegemon in the region. The Iranians uh, have an instrumental use for their uh, hatred of Israel because what they think is that via that, 
they can mobilize the masses of the Arab publics behind them. I think they have a very simplistic and maybe slightly outdated view, by the way, of the Arab publics, who I think by and large today are, are maybe much less motivated by and uh, galvanized by the Palestinian cause than was once the case. But I think the Iranians still believe that. And they believe that the Palestinian cause can kind of uh, cancel out there is the Iranian essential foreignness in the region to the power too, given that they are both Shia Muslims and that they are, of course, non-Arabs. They believe that can, can cancel that out. So I think that's the, the kind of pragmatic or instrumental element of the focus on Israel. But I think we shouldn't uh, forget that there is also something genuine about this. I mean, certainly if we look at the ideologues who uh, who were behind the Iranian revolution, Islamic revolution, including Khomeini himself, they were talking about Israel and the Palestinian cause, and it's written and recorded all the way back to the late 1960s and 1970s. One of their very first acts in Tehran on taking control in Tehran was to allow the sacking of the former Israeli embassy in Tehran and its immediate replacement by the PLO embassy, which is still there today. So there is an ideological element in this too, where they care very very much about the notion that Jerusalem is in the hands of non-Muslims and they want to reverse that. By the way, it's an interesting thing to note that Shia Muslims traditionally have never cared much about Jerusalem, which was conquered by their arch enemies, the Umayyads. So this is not about sort of ancient Islamic motivations. It's about something quite modern, actually, a sort of modern political Islam, which takes in both Shia and Sunni uh, elements. But you know, be that as it may, the fact is, yes, I think the regime takes that very, very seriously. So, you know, there's both pragmatic elements to this, but there's also, I think, very heartfelt ones. And, and the last thing to put in mind is the kind of eschatological uh, religious element, which I'm afraid we can't entirely dismiss, you know, the notion of the hidden imam and the kind of process that has to take place to make the imam Mahdi reveal himself. And then the notion oft repeated in Iranian and pro-Iranian literature of Israel and the Jews identified as what they call the Dajjal, which is the kind of this demonic uh, uh, adversary figure to the Imam Mahdi with whom the Imam Mahdi will fight a huge and climactic battle on his return in a kind of end time scenario. So we shouldn't forget that also, I'm afraid, even though it may seem kind of slightly weird to us uh, when, we're, when we're looking for the roots of the Iranian focus on Israel, which absolutely is a very real thing and we see evidence of it uh, daily. So that brings us to the nuclear option. Mm -hmm. If we're already talking about ends of days scenario. Yeah. <laughs> so recently, of course, the US appears to be re-upping its, its attempts for a nuclear deal, as mm -hmm. you said before the elections. How real do you, do you think that this uh, attempt is? And do you think that Iran is even going to play along? As you said uh, yourself, right. uh, all the deals that it's made recently in the region, they've kind of scoffed at in the end. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're still only in the initial stages of, of getting evidence of, of what may be happening, so to speak. Uh, what, the, what the reports have said is that the negotiations are uh, being run out of Oman. And we hear a report that uh, senior official Brett McGurk was there. And, and, you know, so we're picking up snippets. The initial reporting, I think, was from a, a site called Iran International, which is a uh, Iranian opposition site. But it's also, you know, a serious news site. It's, it's, let's say it's, it's broken things in the past that have turned out then to be quite serious. So, yeah, I would tend to take seriously the emergent reports. There was subsequent reporting by Israeli reporter uh, Barak Ravid in Axios. And Ravid, you know, is somebody who has, you know, some very good sources, I think, especially in the Israeli uh, system. So, you know, there's, a there's an accumulating body of evidence to suggest 
that something indeed may be uh, going on. Now, certainly in terms of what Iran International and the other reports have said, what's being talked about is what we used to call a, uh, or what's being called a less for less deal. That is to say, rather than a, what the JCPOA was, you know, a return to a kind of comprehensive deal for the long-term resolution of the Iranian nuclear issue, the sense would be, okay, well, we see we can't get to that, but let's, instead of settling for nothing, let's try and get something less than that. We give, let's say, we give less to the Iranians, and the Iranians give less in return. And what's being talked about, at least in the reports, is the notion of very serious sanctions relief for the Iranians uh, in return for their kind of freezing their current nuclear activity at its present level, where they do already have, as uh, US officials have said, sufficient uh, nuclear material such that it would take them just about another couple of weeks to have sufficient fissile material for making uh, a nuclear uh, weapon. So that's the idea. What is the details of what they're going to get uh, that's been revealed so far? It's been talked about that there is, uh, if I remember correctly, $10 billion uh, being held for them in Iraq and $7 billion held for them in South Korea, uh, which is uh, revenue in return for oil uh, uh, purchased outside of, of the uh, sanctions uh, uh, program, and that that $17 billion would become available to Iran in return for it freezing its nuclear activity at the current level. That would be, from an Israeli point of view, at least very bad indeed, because what it would mean, of course, would be that the Iranians would receive a very, very substantial or reward uh, for not very much at all, for just about agreeing to stay where they are, and where they are, at least in the estimation of people who's using this I take very seriously, where they are currently are, is they are effectively a nuclear threshold state. So that's not where Israel wants them to be, and Israel certainly doesn't want to see them returning to international norm normalcy uh, with you know with that situation running in place. But yeah, I think the evidence, the indications rather, do seem to suggest that this is something we should take very very seriously. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure that it's credible to believe that the Biden administration would like to have a diplomatic achievement on the Iran file prior to 2024. So put all that together, yeah, once again, I would say we should be looking very closely at this, and it is a subject of some concern. So we have this deal that's not so great for Israel. We have Syria, who's being re-embraced. We have Iraq, who's flaring up as well, correct? Tell us a little bit about Iraq. Well, in Iraq, what you have is you have an ongoing situation where uh, the pro-Iranian uh, militias, what's called the Hashta Shabi or popular mobilization units, have a kind of freedom of action uh, inside uh, inside Iraq. I, I'm in terms of my reporting over the years, I've also managed to spend some time with them as well during the ISIS war because that the Iraqi Shia militias was something which I and other colleagues. You know, took very seriously right from the beginning when we saw the mobilization of Iraqi Shia militias against ISIS in 2014. We realized, okay, this is going to be a problem because something, one thing which we know from the past from Lebanon and other areas is, you know, it's one thing to mobilize the Shia militias and it's a very different thing to demobilize them once the uh, immediate threat has passed. The immediate threat can pass, the militias tend to stick around and then they become political and military tools for the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that is precisely what has happened in Iraq. An attempt after the uh, Iraqi elections 
to build a, a government excluding the pro-Iranian element, which was attempted between uh, the uh, movement of Muqtada Sadr and the Kurdish uh, Democratic Party of Barzani and the uh, Takaddam movement, which is a Sunni Arab movement. That attempt failed. And in the end, the government that has emerged in Iraq under Prime Minister Mohammad Shia Sudani is a government dominated by the Iran associated element, which means that there is a situation today in which the Iranians are effectively, they're not, they're not exclusively in control of Iraq, there are still other power centers, but they are today the most powerful single element uh, in Iraq. Let me give you an example. The so-called, or it's not fair to say the so-called, the acting national security advisor of the Iraqi prime minister today, uh, you know, is is a person who is closely associated with the Badr organization, which is the uh, the uh, one of the most powerful and well-known uh, Iran-supported militias, militia parties in the country. So the person taking key national security decisions is a person from an organization that answers directly to the Islamic Republic, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps of the Iranian regime. The Iranians are deep into Iraq. Now, according to a recent report in the Washington Post, the re the uh, attacks in recent weeks and months on U.S. personnel inside Syria, 900 U.S. service people, of course, in eastern Syria today, were carried out from Iraq by Iraq-supported Shia militia. So these are the people who are both the de facto governing authority of uh, Iraq, and they are also engaged in a kind of low-scale but growing insurgency against the U.S. presence, both in Syria and also in Iraq itself. You are painting such a dire picture. I hope we can go out on a bit of a high. There are, of course, rumors all the time of Israel becoming normalized with uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Rumors. We don't know what's happening, actually. And yeah. what are your thoughts on this? First of all, I think we should, you know, we should have all due humility, so to speak. That's to say, you know, I and others were sort of giving briefings, you know, literally in weeks prior to the Abraham Accords, where we were saying, you know, Israel has a great de facto relationship with UAE, and it's very likely that both Israel and the UAE will prefer to keep it de facto rather than de jure for the foreseeable future. And even while we were saying that, you know, the final touches were being put on uh, on the formal diplomatic recognition between the two countries. So I think we, you know, we should always keep a fair a, a fair amount of humility in this. There's lots that we don't know, lots that we can't know for all for all that we do know, and we should always bear that in mind. Um, the, uh, the the famous uh, unknown unknowns of Donald Rumsfeld are, are, are always among us, and we shouldn't forget that. Having said that, I do think that there is, at least from what I gather on on open source uh, media, I do think there there does appear to remain quite significant. Uh, barriers to a formal recognition between Israel and Saudi Arabia uh, at the present time. And the two things which we which we are reading about, at least, are the Saudi desire for American approval for a civil nuclear program in return for recognition, and perhaps less, in, perhaps less importantly, or at least less of a barrier, the Saudi desire for access to various uh, advanced uh, US weapons systems in return for an agreement of that kind. The weapons systems maybe could be finessed. Obviously, for Israel, what's called the QME, or the Qualitative Military Edge that it wishes to maintain is a very important strategic uh, objective, but, but it's possible that could be finessed between you know, allowing the Saudis access to certain of what they want and not all of what they want and seeing if we can meet somewhere in the middle. With regard to the uh, civil 
nuclear program, however, at least as far as I'm aware, yeah, there's very, very serious Israeli objection to that for, you know, I think understandable or kind of fairly obvious reasons. Israel does not want to kind of help trigger a regional nuclear arms race by the beginnings of, you know, Saudi approved civil nuclear uh, power. It's understandable why the Saudis want it as well. Of course, this is not a question of sort of, you know, good against evil here, but it's it's a kind of understandable context in which uh, objectives and uh, orientations are clashing. Now, it would seem to me, at least on the face of it, that, that would be quite a difficult barrier to get over. So we shall see. But I think we certainly shouldn't, uh, you know, shouldn't rule anything out in this regard. Jonathan, very soon we'll have COP28 in Dubai. And at this meeting, we could see Assad, we could see Netanyahu, mm-hmm. we could see so many of the regional leaders together. How do you see this playing out? You know, difficult to predict. But yeah, of course, it is quite possible that certainly Netanyahu has received his invitation, as we, as we hear, and that Assad is, is probably is quite likely to be there as well. You know, it stands, I suppose, to be uh, a demonstration of the kind of quite strange and emergent new regional picture that we've been discussing, and quite fluid regional picture that we've been discussing, you know, in which the UAE simultaneously is a kind of you know a growing partner for Israel in all kinds of areas and of course we could talk about the the burgeoning trade relationship since 2020 since we don't want to always only be talking about gloomy and dire uh, stuff you know that's something which has been a, a really notable success and Netanyahu's presence there is uh, is relevant to that and especially given the fact that there has been concern for coming out of UAE with regard to the complexion of the current Israeli government. And as a result, you know, a certain sense of a cooling in relations in recent uh, months. You know, if Netanyahu goes to the, to the conference, and that's a sign that nevertheless, things are still intact, maybe even still moving forward. And, and parallel to that, if Assad is there, we have the strange situation in which, you know, at the same time as relations with UAE and Israel are growing and, and deepening and warming, there is also a parallel return to normalizing relations uh, and Surviving relations with uh, the uh, the Syrian dictatorship, which is a key ally of the Iranians. It's worth remembering in this regard that the UAE has uh, was was pioneering actually in the return normalizing of relations with Assad, and they reopened their embassy, if I'm uh, if I remember correctly, as long ago as 2018. So they were very much uh, ahead in that, and there's a reason for that as well, which I think we always need to bear in mind when we talk about common strategic uh, goals and perceptions between Israel and the Gulf Arabs. Yes, there are common goals and perceptions, but the order of priorities has always been quite uh, different. Israel, of course, places Iran and the uh, Shia Islamist threat, so to speak, at absolutely number one, and the Iranian nuclear file as the, you know, the top of the agenda without any question. For the Emiratis, by contrast, there was always a little bit more of a focus on Sunni political Islam, on the Muslim Brotherhood and the Sunni Islamist threat, because, of course, for them, in a certain way, that's a maybe more tangible threat uh, than, uh, the, than the Iranianists, or at least no less tangible. So there was always a difference in that prioritizing. And from that point of view, the return of Syria uh, to uh, normal relations with UAE becomes a bit more comprehensible because, of course, from one from one point of view, you know, I say this with hesitation, and as somebody who witnessed some of the worst acts of the Assad regime quite close up during the war, but from one point of view, Assad can be seen as somebody who faced a largely Sunni Islamist insurgency and managed to hold out against it. This certainly is the way that he's seen uh, in Cairo, also by the Egyptian uh, government, and I think to a great extent, the UAE maybe share part of that. So that's one of the reasons and explanations also for their willingness to sort of get out in front in normalizing with Assad. They just see the region not quite in the way we do in a similar way, but not quite in the same way. 
Jonathan, I thank you so much for allowing me to pick at the tangled web that this region weaves so easily. And I really appreciate your perspective. Most welcome. And thanks again for inviting me, Amanda. Pleasure. On Sunday night, Israel's high-level security cabinet convened at the IDF's main operational command bunker in Tel Aviv to simulate a potential multi-front war. Later in the week, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant brushed aside Iranian claims that it had developed a new hypersonic missile, saying Israel would always have a solution to counter it. Hopefully, even against a missile that Iran claims can penetrate all of Israel's defenses in a mere 400 seconds. A special thanks to diplomatic correspondent Lisa Behrman for helping me prepare for this conversation. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.